Jerry Nichols is joining us from his home in Oakville, Ontario. Mr. Nichols is a well-known political consultant and analyst. TV viewers across Canada see him regularly on Power in Politics and other such shows. He's an old friend and always welcome to the airwaves of this program. Jerry, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us again. And uh, last weekend, was we were treated to the annual Conservative Party of Canada convention, convention rather virtual though it was, which made it even more boring, frankly, and harder to follow. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, they had a they had a, a rather unique situation in which, going into the the convention, the leader gave a rousing speech in which he uh, uh, basically encouraged all attending to uh, get behind the 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 the, the party stance on important matters like climate change and various other economic matters, and uh, given a chance to vote, the, the delegates turned down uh, the uh, the motion declaring ki- climate change to be real and were going to take action, even though the leader had encouraged them to do just that uh, uh, the night before. So, Jerry, uh, what this does is present kind of a confusing picture to folks, especially non-conservative insiders, because they look at this and go, geez, the guy uh, uh, can't even run a party. How can we expect it to run a country? Little uh, uh, taking into consideration, weird stuff happens every year at the annual Progressive Conservative Party convention. Yeah, right. Uh, well, yeah, I, it's a strategy. I'm not sure why O'Toole and his advisors, you know, went this route. It's like the old, you know, uh, uh, advice to lawyers, never ask a question you don't know the answer to already. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, if they thought there was any chance that this motion would have been defeated, they never should have you know, put it forward, or they never should have had O'Toole making a big speech urging, uh, urging the delegates to embrace it. Because right now, as you said, it makes it look like the, you know, the party's confused. It makes it look like there's a schism between the leadership and the delegates. Right. This is not a good look for the conservatives. It's not good optics, especially going into an election. And for the life of me... I, I would, if I was advising a tool, I would say don't do this because mm-hmm. you, you got to know the delegates are going to vote against it, uh, and not just because. I don't think it's really a question about the environment or climate change. Mm-hmm. I just think they wanted to stick it to the establishment. Yeah, right. I think they're just being contrarian, and they're saying, "Oh, you know, the elites and the CBC—they all want us to vote for this, so we'll, we'll show them." Mm-hmm. Right. I think it was just that kind of, and and O'Toole should have known that psychology was out there. And the fact that he doesn't seems he doesn't didn't understand that seems to me he doesn't really have a grasp on where his party is or where it wants to go. And I think more importantly, Jerry, uh, uh, not enough of a grasp of what the opposition, his uh, the government in this case, is all about. This is this you know, and this is their premier. Uh, ticket to re-election. They, this, climate change is what Justin Trudeau's government is built on. And, and uh, I thought O'Toole's response to the Supreme Court ruling the other day was good. He said uh, the, what, the, what the ruling does is prove that, uh, uh, that all of this uh, pollution is, is real. So uh, dealing with it has to be also real. Uh, we choose not to have a carbon tax, and we'll detail that, but uh, you know, so using the Supreme Court ruling essentially as the final cud- uh, cudgel with which to bash the delegates who voted it down in the first place. <laughs> Again, kind of public and kind of embarrassing, but he did sort of complete the circle in an awkward way. Well, I, I think the problem for O'Toole is it doesn't really matter what his position is on climate change. It doesn't really matter what his position is on, on the carbon tax. 
it's it's an argument he's never going to win. Right. As long as the conservatives are are, are pushing the environment, uh, they're always going to lose to Justin Trudeau, because the environment, carbon tax, climate, that's all Trudeau's home turf. That's right. Right. So voters are always going to give you know the liberals more credibility on that issue. So even if even if a tool were to come out and say I'm going to embrace the carbon tax, I'm going to do everything Justin Trudeau's doing. I doubt very much it would win him many much in the way of new votes. Mm-hmm. People would say, "Oh, well, I have two choices. One is just turned into a climate change evangelist, and one's been, you know, this has been his thing for the whole time. Right. I'm going to vote for the real guy." Right. So, uh, so I don't think it would help O'Toole. No, I don't think so either. Uh, I suppose, though, what's what's most perplexing to to a lot of Canadians, and Jerry, you're good at taking the pulse and keeping an eye on what people are saying, and I'm hearing a lot of, geez, you know, the guy's a bit of a disappointment. We were hoping that would be would be would be a stronger character than than Andrew Shear, who was basically a liberal who wore a different color tie. Unfortunately, I'm starting to hear from a lot of people who really want to vote conservative that this guy's just another liberal and I'm not leaning that way anymore. And obviously you, it, 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 there's not a lot of alternatives anywhere to the center and, and to the right, but it's, it's there. Are you hearing that disappointment at all? Well, I, I think what's interesting about O'Toole is that if you recall during the leadership race, he kind of cast himself as the right wing guy, mm-hmm. as the tough guy. Uh, whereas, you know, McKay, Peter McKay, he was, a, he was a, you know, the, the liberal wannabe. He That's was right. too left. He was too progressive. I'm a real conservative. That was kind of his message, and it was a message that propelled him to victory. Definitely. And once he got that victory, he decided, you know what, I'm going to pivot. Now that, I've, now that I'm leader, I can sort of, you know, turn my back on the people who got me here and try to win over new people. Mm-hmm. And this is a very, this is typical for a lot of politicians, and I've worked in the states, and it's sort of a similar dynamic there. If you want to win a Republican primary, you have to be really conservative, even to be really right wing to win a primary. Sure. But once you win the primary, you kind of you kind of want to expand your reach, and so you move to the center a little bit. And I see that this is, seems to be the strategy that O'Toole is doing, but he's he's very clumsy at it. Mm-hmm. It seems to me. And in the process, he's angering a lot of the people who were his supporters, who, as you said, thought, hey, I thought you were different. I, I thought you were a different kind of politician than you are. And this is the real danger for O'Toole going forward. If he tries to move too much to the center, if he tries to kind of pander or placate to the Canadian media, he risks alienating his own base. He risks turning conservatives against him. Now, the argument is, well, who else are they going to vote for? That's right, yeah. The answer is they might not vote. That's right. That's even that's even more of a problem because uh, as the liberals who used to occupy basically the center leaning slightly left and the conservatives occupying the other half of center leaning slightly right, that was Canadians are centrist, Jerry. We live in the middle. Understanding for a century and a half, that's that's how you you get a huge country with small population to get things done. So uh, uh, the liberals are are no longer center left. They're decidedly left of center. So uh, you're right. Uh, if you're going to vote anything centrist, it should be the Conservative Party. And if the Conservatives are looking left of center to some, that's that's not uh, that's not very encouraging to the point where, and I, I'm taking your point in the long way, to, to the point where a lot of Conservative or potential Conservative voters will just stay home because there's nobody to vote for. And that's discouraging. 
people want, uh, if people who are upset with the liberals, they want an alternative, yes. not an imitation. And I think that's usually is, when the conservatives understand that and they go forward to an election, they can do well. And I, I always said that, you know, what the best way for the conservatives to win is not so much to convince people to vote for them, but for people to reject the liberals. It's much easier to vote, get people to vote to do something uh, they're against than to do something they're for. No question so about what it. What that means is they, the conservatives have to degrade Justin Trudeau's brand. They have to get liberals staying home, or they have to convince sort of, you know, on-the-fence liberals to vote for the NDP or to vote for the Green or sometimes to vote for the Conservatives. The point is they have to, they have to lower the number of people voting liberal. That's the only way they can win. Right. And is that possible, do you think? Yeah, it's possible. It's, it's, it's not easy. Uh, you have to really know how to tailor your message in a way that gets your point across, but, you know, doesn't attach a stigma to you. Right. I'm talking about, you know, the dreaded negative attack. Act. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to get your message out in a way that's convincing and persuasive to people. You have to get your message out in 15 seconds or less. That's not easy. It takes a lot of skill. But if the conservatives can do that, if they can find a way to kind of go after Trudeau and say, look, this is not the guy. He's not competent. He's not the leader we need right now. He's got all these problems. He's got all these scandals. We need to change. Right. That's the message the conservatives have to sort of pummel people over the head over the next few months. It's not what does, you know, is a tool a nice guy? It's not where does he stand in the environment? Right, right. It's we need change. Jerry Nichols on the line from Ontario, Oakville specifically, just a little west of Toronto. Jerry is a well-known political analyst and commentator. We're talking about the Conservative Party and their fortunes in the wake of their convention and the recent ruling by the Supreme Court on carbon tax. And Jerry, thank you for your patience, first of all, and sticking around through the news break. There's a, a person in the Conservative Party whom a lot of Canadians first came to know about uh, a year ago when the leadership uh, campaign was underway, a Toronto lawyer named Leslyn Lewis, who just blew the doors off the place with her presence, her speaking, uh, her her, her uh, platform, and her demeanor, and uh, really caused a lot of uh, conservatives across the country to sit up straight and go, oh, wow, who's this breath of fresh air? Where on earth was she at this uh, Conservative Party convention, and why has she all but vanished? She's the kind of fresh blood O'Toole desperately needs if he's going to un- uns- upset Justin Trudeau. Well, we're talking about uh, change in the Conservative Party and how Tool wants change. seems to me Leslie Lewis kind of personifies change. Exactly. Right? For the Conservative Party because she's, she's everything people say that the Conservatives aren't, right? She's a woman, she's articulate, uh, she's African-Canadian or whatever. So, you know, she's, she's changed just by who she is. Sure. And I think the problem is uh, she's also a social conservative. And I think that is something that O'Toole wants to distance himself away from. Uh, he's, you know, he's come out and said he's proudly pro-choice. Yep. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Yeah, pro-choice. Um, and so uh, I think she is kind of like, even though she has all those great assets we were talking about before, because of her ideology, because she's social conservative, is probably something O'Toole does not want to attach himself too much to hmm. or the party to. That would be my guess. And again, because it would be such an attackable uh, point from, from from the Liberal Party, particularly. 
Yes, and I think this is, again, part of the problem with the Conservatives is they're too defensive, Mm -hmm. right? They're too worried about what the Liberals will say about them rather than going on the attack themselves. And I think if the Conservatives are going to be successful, they have to be more aggressive. Well, yeah, they have to stop. We have to worry a little bit less about what the Liberals will say and concentrate more on what they're going to say. People call up this program, Jerry, and send me emails, a lot of frustrated emails I get from voters, basically saying, what is it with this guy? Does he ever get angry? Does he ever, what does he stand for besides trying to get get me on side with climate change? Trudeau's already there. What is, the, what is this guy going to do differently? And frankly, there's not a lot of evidence, Jerry, that uh, there is a great deal of difference. Well, again, I think, I think he's got to define who he is. I think part of the problem is, I mean, I, I, I did a poll of Canadians. I'm sure a lot of people could not pick him out of a lineup. Right. Right. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he stands for, which is exactly the same problem that Andrew Scheer had. So I think the conservatives have to start defining who he is. And yeah, I think they have to define him as a strong, tough leader. He's got the background to do it. He's former military. Sure. Yeah. So that, that, that's like code. All they have to do is have old pictures of, of O'Toole in his uniform, and that, you know, we're a visual species, and that tells people this guy is brave, he's patriotic, he's disciplined, he's a leader, he's mm-hmm. tough. And I think that's, that's the kind of branding the conservatives have to do, because they're, not gonna, they're certainly not going to out-cute Justin. No. Nope. And, right? and, you know, the, the standing, and I saw it again, somebody wrote in, in one of the national papers just a few days ago, this will resonate with you. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a reminder to Aaron O'Toole, you're not running against a politician. You're running against a celebrity. It's a different ballgame. Yes, and, and, and Trudeau is what I call a personality candidate. Uh, people don't vote for him because of his policies or because he stands. Uh, the issues they vote for him because they like him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's in it, Ronald Reagan was the same way. People liked Ronald Reagan and they voted for him. People like Justin Trudeau and they vote for him. He's an affable person, mm-hmm. and the liberals do a good job of kind of you know getting that image out there and that branding out there. They say he's a nice guy. He's a, as you said, he's a, he's a he's a celebrity. He's a rock star. He's exciting. Uh, it's it's a tough kind of candidate to be. And, and, you know, I think the, the NDP tried to out-cue Justin when they got uh, Jack McSing as a leader. Right. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think what, what, what the conservatives have to do is have to do a counter. And, that, you know, what bugs me about their advertising so far and their messaging is they're saying, they're basically saying, O'Toole's boring. He's dull. Mm-hmm. That's what we need. We need a dull leader. He's not a celebrity. I don't think that's the proper messaging. What I have to say is he's a leader. Mm-hmm. That's what they have to say. He's a leader. He's strong. He's tough. He knows how to get things done. And, and that's what distinguishes him from the celebrity Justin Trudeau. Well, and, right? and the that's other part the kind of the message you may have to get across. And the other part, though, about the celebrity thing is that, it, and, and you're quite right, and very personable, very skillful in terms of media and all the rest of it. However, you know, when, it, when, it, when push comes to shove and you boil it right down to competent management, ability to run the show efficiently and effectively, there's a whole other set of criteria that come into play, celebrity having very little to do with it. Uh, that's the, that's the, the, the level of, uh, the, the, that uh, should form uh, the, the bulk of the attack from where I'm sitting. It's a management thing where we've just been through a, a pandemic crisis that has been managed to one extent or another. How skillfully, how efficiently, well, it's still up in the air. The history is still being made, Jerry, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest incompetence. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, people, 
people will put up with a lot from their leaders. They'll put up with a lot of scandals. They'll put up with corruption. They'll put up with all kinds of stuff. What they won't put up with is incompetence, Mm -hmm. right? They won't put up with a guy who doesn't know how to run the country. That scares them, and that will turn them off. And again, I, I said earlier, they have to degrade Justin Trudeau's brand. What the conservatives have to say is Trudeau doesn't know what he's doing. You know, we can't trust this guy at the top. We're heading into, you know, a really um, fragile time for our country with the economy. Who's going to know what's going to happen with COVID? There's international changes all over the place. Now is not the time, you know, for a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Right? Now is the time for a real leader. I think that's the kind of message that will resonate with voters. Let's uh, take a look at uh, the uh, the first 60 days of the new leader south of the border, Jerry. You've, uh, we were talking about your American clients earlier. You have uh, consulted American clients for many, many years, keeping a sharp watch on the political uh, changes down south of the border. Biden finally got around to giving a formal press conference the other day. How's he doing from a consultant analyst perspective? Well, I think one of the qu- lingering questions about uh, Biden is his fitness for office. Right. Because, like, what, what is he, 150 years old or something? I don't know. He's, <laughs> right. he's pretty old. He's like late 70. I think he referred to himself as 120 at one point during his <laughs> press conference. And, you know, there was that scene where he, you know, tripped going up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Yes, on, the, on that, the, going up to the plane. Bad. Yeah, going, going up in the plane, yeah. up the stairs three, three times. And that's bad for a politician because, like, again, I said earlier, we're a visual species. And even subconsciously, people seeing their leader do that, the, the message is, you know, Frailty. Is, is this guy capable of running the country? Yeah. This is why I think they had this news conference, right? They wanted to say, hey, look, he's fine. He's got all his marbles. He can do a good job. And I think he did okay. I think one of the advantages that, that Biden has is, 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 is low expectations, right? The more his opponents and the more Republicans and the more conservatives say this guy is, you know, is senile right, and he's sure. using it. And all he has to do is show that he isn't, right? He, he exceeds expectations. And I think he did that, with, at least for the most part, with his news conference. But I think it's going to be a problem uh, plaguing Biden for a while because he's not going to get any younger. Right. And he already talked about running again in 2024, which was, I, I, I was quite shocked by it. And of course, you understand why he would say that. But to, to go there with 60 days into his first four years, uh, again, it's reinforcing the I'm, as, I'm a lot stronger than a lot of people think I am uh, kind of, of, of bravado. But uh, I, I was interested uh, in your thoughts on the 100 million vaccines in the first 100 days being so successful, he's actually doubled it to 200 million vaccines and and plans to pull it off still inside that first 100 days that's ambitious and if he if he does pull it off it's it's a big plus well we were talking earlier about competence right and if biden can say look i was competent in getting these vaccines out that's going to go a long way to to helping his presidency and to and to restoring faith in american people this guy yeah he he can do it because, look, he did this with a vaccine. Sure. Uh, and you can tr- contrast that to what's happening here in Canada, where there seems to be having some problems with the vaccine rollout. And it has the opposite effect on Justin Trudeau. So, yeah, these are the kinds of things voters you, know, you have to keep in mind. The media cares a lot about sort of the, the nitty gritty of policy and who hates who and polls and all that kind of stuff. Right. Most people don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. They pay attention to stuff that impacts them on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And nothing impacts people more than COVID. And so anybody who says, I'm going to help you get rid of COVID, people are going to say, yay. It doesn't matter what their ideology is. It doesn't matter what their party is. 
I think, Jerry, just to finish things off, uh, it, it's, it's also there's a matter of after a year of COVID and we're well now a year plus and dealing with a lot of economic negative, awful fallout. It's about a plan. People need to feel comfortable and confident that there is a plan, that there is we're going to recover. Yes, the housing market is on its on fire, but that's a that's a whole other insanity. But typically the Canadian economy, it, it needs uh, some guidance and uh, I, I guess, bottom line, uh, in terms of an election issue, people are going to need to feel comfortable that what, and we'll learn more about it in the budget in a few weeks. But what's the plan? O'Toole so far has no plan. The Liberals will tell us what their plan is in a couple of weeks, which is essentially, as I take it, Jerry, to buy the next election, whatever the tab may turn out to be. I think this is why, I think you're right, Sterling, and I think this is why we're going to probably see an election in June. Mm-hmm because we kind of know what the economy is going to be like in June. It's, it's going to be pretty much like it is now, pretty stable, no real problems. And I think Justin Trudeau wants to have an election when that's the case, rather than risking waiting you know, eight or nine months down the road, because we don't know what the world will be like then. Mm-hmm. Who knows, right? Who knows what's going to happen to the economy? Who knows what's going to happen to COVID? Who knows what's going to happen all over the world? So for Justin Trudeau, the safe bet is to go sooner rather than later when we kind of have a handle on what's going on. He'll be, you know, just a budget when he, as you say, he'll say, here's my plan is to spend lots of money and give people lots of goodies. Right. And so he will take that momentum going into June at a time when he thinks, think, you, know, who, the, you know, COVID might be dropping too by then. Who knows? So that's probably a good time for him to, you know, to pull the trigger. Interesting stuff. Final question to you, Jerry Nichols. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm going to throw the question that is on our buzz lines right now. Uh, you're in Ontario. Uh, vaccine passports are going to play uh, as much of a role getting you to BC, perhaps on a plane this summer, as it is for me to go back and have lunch with you in Oakville. Are you in favor of vaccine passports? Well, you know, the libertarian side of me is a little worried about that. Because you're creating, I think, you know, second-class citizens, people who aren't vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the reality is they're going to come. Because I think it's part of, of making people feel comfortable again and traveling and going to restaurants and things like that. So I, I think they're inevitable. I miss my hockey games, Jerry. If, it ta- if that's what it takes to get me back to a Canucks game, stab me now. Well, I think a lot of people are you know, following that line of logic. <laughs> Great to have you back with us. Thanks for this, Jerry. And believe me, if there's an election called this summer, you and I will have a few of these conversations. I'll be here. Excellent. Looking forward to them already. Thanks for today. With the global rollout of COVID-19 vaccinations continues to accelerate, it is worth remembering that only around 1% of the world's population has received their full course of injections. Billions are still waiting for their first dose, which inevitably leads those people to question exactly when they will get it, especially as plans are being made internationally to allow those that have been vaccinated or can prove they've had a recent negative test, the freedom to travel to other countries, attend large-scale events, take a new job, and more. And of course, all of this is uh, important to our next guest. He is the head of the Engineering Department for Canada for Checkpoint Software Technologies Research Department. A real pleasure to welcome Robert Falzon to the program. Mr. Falzon, Robert, good morning and welcome. 
Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. It's great to have you with us, Robert. And uh, I was talking about these uh, I, the setup to our conversation, beginning with the fact that even though uh, we know vaccines are happening, I now actually know people who are vaccinated. I'm sure you do, too. I haven't had mine yet, and I doubt you have had yours, but at least we know people who have. And yet at the same time, the, the, the warning this morning, and this is why you're with us, is because of what's going on for those who can't wait. Uh, there's, uh, and I, I'm looking at one of your uh, security bulletins here, Robert, uh, from Checkpoint Research entitled A Passport to Freedom, Fake COVID-19 Test Results and Vaccination Certificates Offered on Darknet and Hacking Forums. This is your turf, Robert. Tell us more about the Darknet and all this fake stuff. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. And what a, what a great topic, too. And, and yes, I do know a few people who have been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I, uh, a I heard you speaking earlier about playing hockey, and uh, I very much uh, miss playing hockey with my buddies. Uh, so I'm really hoping that uh, I get called soon. Sure. <laughs> it's going. But, you know, to that point, I think there's a lot of folks who are feeling this, uh, the stress and the, um, the, the overall anxiety of not having this vaccination soon enough with, with the shortages that we've seen and Certainly, there's a lot of attention being paid to this in the news as well. Mm-hmm. So people are, are concerned about this. And, and whenever there's this sort of uh, drive towards concern or anxiety, we start to see folks who look to do things like jump the queue. Sure. Find other ways maybe to, to help themselves or their families. Uh, right. And those people are being taken advantage uh, of by folks who are uh, a little bit less scrupulous, obviously. And they're looking to make money because whenever there's uh, fear, there's an opportunity uh, for these folks. Right. So yeah, it kind of goes back a little bit. Um, actually, <laughs> we saw this when the vaccine start, first started to become available. Actually, we started to find out that on the dark web, uh, there was uh, folks who are selling the actual fake vaccines themselves. Now, of course, they're not calling them fake vaccines, uh, but they were making them available and telling people that, you know, they would ship these to them overnight. Um, you know, you could get a vaccine for uh, a few hundred dollars. Right. Uh, our research is at Checkpoint. Uh, yeah, our Checkpoint research actually we tried to purchase a few of these using Bitcoin um, to, to see if we could get them shipped. We never did receive the fake vaccines. Interesting. Advertised as being from yeah, all the major vendors and so forth. Um, but would it be worthwhile maybe to talk a little bit about what the dark web is? Yeah, sure. Just, just, just might be some, some confusion there. No, no question about it, Robert. But now, now you've now you've just piqued my curiosity. So you tried to, to, <laughs> to you tried to deal with the bad guys. You were ready to go Bitcoin or whatever whatever game they were playing. Did they take your money? You said you never got any fake vaccines or real vaccines, so you don't know what it what it was really they were selling. Did they successfully take your money though? Absolutely. Yeah, right, Absolutely. right, right. They'll right. always successfully take the money. Okay. <laughs> so let's, let's talk. I, I think it's, I think it, it bears taking a moment on a Saturday morning. We're talking sort of inside baseball about the dark web. And I'm here talking like I actually know what I'm talking about and I don't. So tell us about the dark <laughs> web, please. Sure. Yeah, the dark web, it's really not as confusing as it might sound at first. It's really just the part of the internet that isn't indexed by search engines. And there's a lot of encryption uh, that's being used to sort of hide these sites from the, the, the general public or the plain view, right? So the dark web has often been associated as a, you know, a hotbed of criminal activity. Yes. And well, it, it is. <laughs> uh, there are researchers uh, actually not too long ago, a couple of years back, that did an actual study on dark web websites. Uh, and they tried to classify the contents of around 3,000 of these sites that they saw over a two week period 
And they found that like over 60% of those sites were actually hosting illicit material, be it you know, drugs or weapons or other types of uh, contraband. Mm. So um, it's really not a place that uh, you'd be certainly wanting to spend a lot of time, uh, especially if you were concerned about your reputation. Sure. Robert, <laughs> where, did, where, did the, where does the hosting of a lot of these dark web sites occur? Is it here in, in North America? Is it in Europe, in Asia? Where, typically? Well, because it's of its distributed nature, uh, you can't really be sure where the actual materials are being hosted, but one could likely assume that many of them are probably hosted overseas in places that have maybe uh, less stringent security controls uh, or perhaps uh, less ability to enforce uh, the laws in those regions. So we do see a lot coming from, you know, the, the Far East or in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, in various places where it's much easier and accessibility is uh, much higher. And, and the, the point of the conversation this morning, uh, in part at least, Robert, was because that you identified these uh, vaccines and fake certificates and vaccine passports back in January for sale. And, and, and the point that we're making this morning is between January and now, the bad guys have upped their, their game by about three times. There's three times as much of that stuff going on as there was just a couple of months ago. Yeah, it's incredible, and the, and the reason that is, you have to ask yourself, why are they being so successful? Sure, the fact is because they're they're making money, right? So people are paying, and as long as people continue to pay and fall victim to these scams, these scams will continue to operate, right? And this is the same for any scam that we've seen. Once it's successful, um, you know, there's you you you'll be inundated by the scam until a point where it becomes, uh, or we have the capability of cracking down on it. So. Right now, there's, again, a lot of uncertainty about what the actual laws are going to be. Sure. It's, a, it's a completely wide-open landscape right now from country to country. They're all considering different things. And as a result of this, amongst that confusion is, again, this opportunity to really make money while the strike while the iron's hot, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right? So these guys are really taking advantage of it as quickly as they can to make as much money as they can uh, before these things are shut down. Need to take a break here, Robert. But just before we do, do you know what's the biggest selling of these uh, fake items? Is it the fake vaccine passports or is it the actual vaccine or fake vaccine itself? I don't think we have any direct data because we're not seeing the actual sales of it, but we can sort of estimate by the amount of um, uh, advertisements that we see. Uh-huh. And I think we're seeing now, the fact is it's much simple to, simpler to convince somebody to download and obtain an illegal document than perhaps it would be to obtain an actual vial of some kind of serum or sure. vaccine. So those being so much easier to, to deliver and so much easier to scam people on, uh, my expectation is that that's where the focus will be in the next little while. Joined on the line from Oshawa, Ontario, by Robert Falzen. Mr. Falzen is the head of engineering for Canada at Checkpoint Research and is with us today to talk about uh, what's going on on the dark web. Fake vaccination certificates, very popular these days. Our buzz line question, Robert, that we're posing to our listeners this morning, very simply is, are you in favor of a vaccine passport? Uh, we've, uh, we're have we going to talk to a pollster here in about an hour's time who's been taking the sentiments of British Columbia on this matter. And as I understand it, the, the majority of people here, uh, and uh, we talked to Jerry Nichols in Oakville, and he was saying in Ontario the same, the sentiment is very strongly in favor of some kind of documentation for international travel. It, it gets a little dodgy-er when we're talking about, do I need this to travel domestically? What's your take on vaccine passports uh, as, a, as a necessity going forward? 
Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think um, this really kind of ties into the need overall for effective health record tracking, which is another whole area of conversation that's mm-hmm. really interesting to me. Um, I have some you know, minor concerns about the security and the implementation of something like this, right. but I do believe it's critical. If it's, if it's going to allow us the freedom to safely travel uh, you know, internationally and make sure that folks have a basic standard of care, uh, and that they're protected from something as as, uh, as vicious as this virus has been, uh, I think it's a small price to pay, honestly, for that. If it's if it's effectively managed, uh, I believe it would be just fine, and I am for it. Okay, so now and we talk about these fake passports, and particularly it's for sale to Americans with the Center for Disease Control logo, very official-looking documents. Is it likely going forward, you're the cybersecurity expert here, Robert, that a, a paper document will be the, the preferred mode of demonstrating that you've had a vaccine, or is it likely to be more likely to be something you carry on your phone? Well, uh, I hope it's the latter, to be honest with you, um, because the paper, as we know, paper is a quite simple, uh, quite quite an easy thing to actually uh, to face. To be sure. With you, yes, digital can be as well, but there are tools available to us uh, that allow us to be a little bit more uh, certain about the documents that we receive if they were encrypted, signed, and so forth. So, right. Um, but the fact is, to your point. Uh, there are a lot of places, remember, if we're talking about international travel, there are going to be places that don't have access to that technology and right. be forced uh, to use these uh, paper records and so forth. So I think it'll be a mix uh, for, the, for the time to come, which will, of course, introduce that risk that you speak of. Yeah, and of course, because Ed, you're absolutely right, there are, what, 200 and some countries in the world, and we're not going to be able right. to sit around a table and hammer out, uh, here's the way we're going to do vaccine passports going forward. That's not going to happen in the next few weeks at all, is it? So it's going to be kind of a, a, a patchwork quilt uh, to get yourself uh, uh, at least on a plane going somewhere fun. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and it's important, too, right? When you think about this, this is, this is the not just your own health, but the health of those around you as well. And that can't be understated, right? Especially with all these contagious, highly contagious variants, we need some way to make sure that uh, we're taking even the basic levels of protection for ourselves and others. Yeah. Uh, Robert, only a couple of minutes left here, and I need to spend a little bit of time on something your company calls the global cyber pandemic. Uh, you, you, you issued mm-hmm. your security report a few year, a few months ago uh, about this, talking about uh, mostly your clients, organizations, and how they can develop their own cyber immunity from all of this. But what do you mean by the global cyber pandemic? It sounds rather ominous. It is in a way, for sure, and and really is kind of ominous. It's like cyber criminals have really, uh, really locked in on this global crisis and used it as a way to develop all of these new exploits. We have this massive population of people who have been sent home to work. They're using their home equipment to log into the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, you know, there's been so many uh, high-level attacks that we've seen on, you know, the, uh, across the globe as far as like, these major organizations that have been breached. Uh, and these are by Gen 5, brand new Gen V, like Gen 5 cyber attacks. These are really, really sophisticated attacks targeted ransomware that are shutting organizations down and yeah. encrypting all of their data. This is what we're talking about, the cyber pandemic. It's just a massive opportunity uh, for cyber criminals to take advantage of our vulnerabilities. And there are ways to, to manage that, and that's what we spend a lot of time doing here at Checkpoint. We have uh, we have literally hundreds of researchers that spend their entire time uh, literally working on this problem for us. 
and they've developed a number of amazing solutions to help us uh, to, to manage that uh, cyber pandemic. Well, it's interesting that you would put it that way, because in the very short amount of time, humanity has managed to find, develop, and mass-produce a vaccine a matter of months, something that typically takes a matter of years. So we pulled off a scientific miracle in the past 12 months with this vaccine stuff. And so while we're patting ourselves on the back, you hasten to add that the bad guys are moving at about the same rate. They've upped their game and in the last 12 months have packed in about seven years worth of progress technology-wise. 100%. I mean, they're using advanced technology, Sterling. They're using artificial intelligence. They're using encryption. They're using a lot of technologies that we associate often with the good guys. Yeah. So it is important that, uh, that we're combating those with uh, the same level or better technologies. Robert, only a few seconds left. How do people listening to us educate ourselves in order to pr- better protect ourselves in the wake of these very sophisticated bad guys? Well, definitely uh, head over to, to research.checkpoint.com. Check that out. It's a, it's a blog that we run that has all sorts of information about the latest scams and how to protect yourself. Um, you know, change your passwords often. Mm-hmm. Be exceptionally careful of things you open up in your email. Uh, it is actually simpler than you might think to give yourself the most basic level of protection. Well, I've been checking that website out. It is excellent. Research.checkpoint.com. And from Checkpoint Research, the head of engineering for Canada, Robert Falzen, with us this morning. Robert, thanks for your time. Great to have you on the program. Really an outstanding interview. I look forward to an opportunity to pick this conversation up going forward. I hope so. Thank you so much, Sterling. The Supreme Court of Canada has given the federal government the constitutional green light to impose a carbon tax on the provinces. And as we've already seen subsequent to that ruling, uh, not all the provinces have been jumping up and down and applauding. Here to take a look at the ruling and some of the legal implications going forward is law professor Jeff Myers from Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. Dr. Myers, Jeff, good morning and welcome back. Oh, thanks. Good to be on with you, Sterling. Good to have you back, Jeff. A very big ruling for uh, the Trudeau government, certainly, going forward. Even the conservatives, Mr. O'Toole, said uh, with the Supreme Court ruling on Thursday, it definitely, if nothing else, proves that climate change is real and a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, I'm certainly. I mean, when you set it up off the top, uh, Sterling, you, you one thing to just be very clear about, and I think it, it, all Canadians should understand this, this is this, this, uh, this, uh um, legislative scheme doesn't force or uh, the provinces to do the parliament's bidding or to do the federal government's bidding, but it does require them to do it themselves. If they don't place a price on carbon or come up with a, a solution, uh, then there's this backstop which is created by the legislation, right. and that is what the court said was uh, legal. Uh, and that was uh, properly done in accordance with um, the Parliament's jurisdiction uh, under Section 91 of our Constitution, particularly what's called the Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause, which right. is kind of a residual clause, which we teach 1L students or sorry, students in the first year of their law school about this, and I've taught it quite a few times. It's a very important part of the Constitution. And then within that, there's this narrow category, this doctrine called national concerns, which when they arise or galvanize in a particular way, um, can become uh, matters of, um, of uh, federal jurisdiction, but uh, not necessarily exclusively, but in that way uh, permanently over time. And that is what uh, Justice Wagner, who's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, recognized in the judgment. Uh, and he said that in doing so, he recognized the climate change science and said that climate change presented an existential threat 
uh, to uh, humanity and to the country generally, and that it knew no borders, that it was indivisible, it couldn't be dealt with uh, by one province on its own, mm-hmm. and that it required a national response and coordination with other countries, and that, uh, that that would be the law of the land going forward. And there was a 6-3 majority concurring with them. I believe it was the right decision. Uh, the dissent was a, a strong dissent, but I think uh, also wrong on the law. Uh, the dissent, uh, particularly Justice Brown's dissent, suggested that it was an incursion into um, the province's uh, jurisdiction. Exclusive and- jurisdiction, yes. Right, but that's uh, that's not accurate because the the way the law works in an area like the environment, for example, is that it's not an exclusivity. It's not a question of exclusivity. the The law of Canada in the in the area of federal provincial relations or federalism, as constitutional lawyers call it has evolved over the year to involve all kinds of areas of overlapping jurisdiction mm-hmm. and accommodation. This country is not about hard rules uh, like the one he describes. Uh, what, the, what the majority is saying, contrary to, I think, the argument that the dissent is making, is that uh, this matter can't be, and the, 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 the case law recognizes this, that it can't be addressed properly by one province acting alone, and that provinces acting in different ways could hamstring efforts, and that it requires a federal coordinated response. That doesn't mean there's no room for the provinces to come up with their own systems or their own tailored uh, mechanisms, but it means that they have to come up with something. Also, by the way, the argument, and this is not one that, uh, of course, Justice Brown would make because it's just factually incorrect, but the idea that's circulating, for example, in the media and some of the commentariat you know, that this is a tax grab by Ottawa reminiscent of the old NEP is, is nonsense because the money goes back to the provinces. <laughs> this is not under any circumstances the federal uh, money grab. Did it surprise you that it was a six to three split, that it wasn't unanimous? I found it incredibly healthy that there was a, a vigorous dis- dissent uh, included in the decision. Oh, it's an interesting question that you put it that way. That is one of the things I've been thinking about as as this as I've been reading through the judgment, and it's you know it's over. It's like four hundred pages mm-hmm, long, right? Mm-hmm. It's just way through the majority, and now picking my way through some through through Justice um, Brown's dissent, which is also lengthy. Um, you know, I mean, look, one of the most important judgments in in Canadian constitutional history or Supreme Court history around the Constitution is the nineteen ninety eight secession reference, right? Yep. And you may know, and your listeners may know, that that was an important you know, decision because it sort of stabilized what would happen in this country were there a vote to separate by one province on a clear question and a clear majority, right? And notably, the court in that case spoke as one voice, and we call that in the legalese or Latin per curiam. The court, it's not clear what judge wrote the judgment. It's just all nine justices right. speaking in one voice. Mm-hmm. This case is actually, I think, going to historically be shown to be a very important case. It's only a few days after it comes up. A very, very important case. And you're right. Here the court does divide. It doesn't speak in one voice. Right. It's not a per curiam decision. It's not even, you know, one majority decision that everybody signs on to. There is a dissent. I think that our, 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 our bench has a, has, a, has a divide on it. And I think it's, if you look back on other, and I was looking back on some other cases where, for example, um, Justices Brown, Justices Cote, Justice Rao, who are sometimes the outliers on these decisions, mm-hmm. and there's other ones like it, and you can kind of start to see lining up a difference in judicial philosophy for sure. It's, it's, it's less pronounced than the one on the American court, and it's different than that one, but nevertheless, it does exist, and part of it is around the question of provincial and federal jurisdiction and rights. 
So what then, uh, in terms of provincial rights, the most vociferous opponent to all of this so far, because we haven't heard a lot from Kenny, is Scott mm-hmm. Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan, who insists that he's going to conduct his own tax regime. Of course, as we in BC have been doing for quite some time, we're actually the template that a lot of this stuff is, right. is built on. But yeah. Moe Mo says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it my way. Uh, what leeway yeah. does he have? Well, it's interesting, you know, I can also, as you know, as well as being a constitutional scholar, I, in my, in my part-time fun job, I'm a political commentator, right? right, So, so putting on my political commentator hat here, I think it's interesting to think about the configuration of Scott Moe, the Premier of, of, uh, Saskatchewan, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, and then Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, remember they appeared on the front of uh, McLean's magazine as the renegades, mm-hmm. kind of, and the, and so who are these people? They are the ones who coordinated their actions in this reference, right? And now they're going to have separate reactions to, and they're going to be, I think, illustrative of their particular constituencies and some of the politics on the right in Canada to this judgment. Now, my impression of it, it's interesting how you put it, Sterling, but my impression of Scott Moe's reaction was that he was the first one to say, all right, well, we accept the ruling and Mm -hmm. we're going to figure out our own uh, maiden Regina solution here so that we don't have to have one, the backstop. Whereas my sense was that Kenny was maybe a little more grumbly and was going to sort of try to figure out, wasn't exactly excited about having his hand forced in this way. So I, I don't know who was how their reactions are going to play out or whose are going to be constructive or not. But it resets the the playing field. And frankly, when understood by Canadians alongside what they saw happen at the Conservative Party conference this weekend around the issue of climate change, will will sort of put things in sharper perspective. I mean, I think Aaron O'Toole in a way got embarrassed by his own party sure. at the conference. No question. You know, and so your listeners will know that, of course, at the conference, what happened was, is he says we got to recognize the reality of climate change. They don't recognize it as a majority in the policy to just recognize it as a reality. Now the Supreme Court has done that. So we'll see what that does to conservatives again. But the truth of the matter is, um, I think, is that the overwhelming science suggests to us that we have to change our, our, our carbon consumption practices and that we're headed towards a disaster otherwise. We, we have the expert evidence. It's been recognized by the Supreme Court, articulated by our Chief Justice. And, you know, the, the, the continued feeling that this is going to hurt jobs or undermine traditional industries in Western Canada and have um, economic costs, that's understandable. It's all true, but I think it's unavoidable. So, Jeff, the only way then, given this yeah. decision, this split decision, but nonetheless a, a convincing decision from the Supreme Court of Canada with respect to the carbon tax, the only way for us to not have a carbon tax in going forward would be to elect a majority government that is committed to repealing the carbon tax. That's the only way it goes away, right? Well, I think you have to realize, and again, I'm, this is a little beyond my expertise because there are lawyers in, uh, who are more expert in, in, in the carbon tax than I am, right, and tax lawyers in particular. But there are different ways to structure this tax. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of policy room for, for, for provincial governments to, to do this in a way that works for them. Right. So I'm not sure that it's, again, it's not an enforced top-down solution. There's still room for both levels of government here. So it, 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 we don't want to stake it in in that terms. Uh, I don't think we can put it in that stark of in that stark of terms. But yes, also at the same time in a macro level, of course, you're right. Mm-hmm. This is what Canadians have to do is if they want to have this policy, they're going to have to go ahead and elect a conservative government. And guess what? Uh, you can't elect a conservative government with just power, with just you know strong support in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and quite a bit in BC, maybe in Manitoba as well. You also need the GTA. 
That's right. And the people in the GTA believe in climate change. Yeah. And they think you're nuts if you don't. Mm-hmm. That's true. And if and truly, the mathematics, the raw math of Canada is if you can win Ontario and Quebec, you're done. You don't need anybody else. They'd like a few token members, especially from Vancouver, so they can have that Western uh, stronghold. But it, it, the, the math is that such, uh, you're, you're quite right. You don't need that. I think, though, Jeff, bottom line, because I got a bail here, bottom line is this has now forced Canada to move forward. I think rather than framing it as forcing Canada to move forward, I would say it clarifies the matter to permit Canada to act as other nations have to put in place a carbon tax structure. Again, I think it's like 65 other countries and jurisdictions have done this. And again, it, don't, it also permits uh, Canada to enter into agreements and continue along in the Paris Climate Accord without being hamstrung in doing so. And Canada as a country requires the ability to do this. It, it can't be a viable country or do anything internationally if the provinces have so much power that they can just, you know, uh, per, not permit it to enter into treaties or agreements with other countries. So this is necessary. It will be necessary to fight climate change and to move forward. So it's a victory for all Canadians, I believe. Interesting stuff. Jeff, always a pleasure to have you drop in on the program and uh, settle things down with some some uh, legal uh, look at things uh, from the calm perspective of the professor. We appreciate it very much. Always a treat to have you join us. We'll talk again soon. Treat to be on. Thanks, Sterling. There's Dr. Jeff Myers from the law department, law faculty up there at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, also taught here at UBC and at Dalhousie University in Halifax. He's a good friend. It's a pleasure to welcome Mario Canseco back to the show. Mario is the the grand fromage at Research Company. He's the boss, and he's been uh, doing some polling on this very subject himself. Mario, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. So tell us what you found. Our listeners, we just uh, played back a few responses from our listeners a few moments ago. It is not unanimous, but the majority seems to be in favor. This, uh, this is our little straw poll this morning. Your work is considerably more sophisticated. Tell us what you found. Well, it's very similar to what just uh, happened with your listeners. We have uh, definitely more than half of BC residents who are in favor of the vaccine passport concept uh, for specific activities, uh, and certainly higher when it comes to traveling to another country. Okay. 73% of British Columbians who say they think it's a good idea to rely on this passport uh, for people who wish to travel overseas. Sure, and that's uh, likely to be uh, obligatory, isn't it? We're not. Uh, it, it's not anything Canadians are going to have any say on, Mario. When it comes to traveling to any country on Earth, if that country demands a documentation of having been vaccinated, then you got to have it, don't you? Exactly. And it's one of those things uh, where the logistical issues are not going to be that complicated. You still have to go through a very lengthy process to get out of your country with tickets, with passports, with visas. So this is just going to add a little bit of uh, difficulty to those who want to travel. But it's uh, definitely something that is not in our hands. And it's a, a delicate balance. You know, if you want to go out, you have to make sure that you're vaccinated because some countries might, might not take you in, even if you want to spend money as a tourist. That's true. That's absolutely true. They'll just turn you right around at, at the welcome, or the so-called welcoming desk at their customs when you get there. Nope, you're not, you're not vaccinated. You're not welcome. See ya. So uh, on the domestic side, Mario, it gets a little stickier, doesn't it, in terms of our sentiments towards needing vaccine passports to travel within Canada? Yes, it's, uh, the level of support is still over 50%, but not as high as what we see for other countries. 64% of BC residents who think it's a good idea to have the vaccine passport to travel to other Canadian provinces, and 60% who would like that to happen for travel inside their own province. So 
this is where it gets complicated from a logistical standpoint. You can't have, you know, people checking for documents uh, every couple of miles on a road. Right. If you've got somebody who's going to be traveling within your own province or even to another province if you're not taking uh, a, an, an airplane. So what this really says to me is uh, there's a definitely a sense of apprehension with the opportunity for somebody to be traveling and bringing back COVID-19, unbeknownst to them, uh, to their own community. So I, I see this more as uh, maybe residents erring on the side of caution and thinking this may not be the best time for something like this to happen. As we start to get closer to some sort of herd immunity, then we might be able to do something different. Yeah, and, but erring on the side of caution, particularly in the face of these new variants, Mary, I mean, Dr. Henry was on yesterday talking about the surprisingly high number of cases and, and also, uh, not coincidentally, the number of higher number of cases among persons in 19 to 39 years of age. This used to be a year ago. This was only dangerous for old people. Remember, it's gone through quite a few changes. So no wonder so many of us are erring on the side of caution. Now, the other part of this discussion about vaccine passports, Mario, is people who flat out say no. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons for this, and it's certainly a higher number when you're looking into specific activities. So, for instance, uh, 56% support um, having the vaccine passport to be able to go to the theater or cinema. Okay. This means that there's uh, more than four, more than two in five who say, well, I, I don't think this is a good idea. You shouldn't be telling me what I can or cannot do with a vaccine. Sure. So there's a little bit of a shift there. But what we've seen consistently over the past year is uh, roughly 15 to 20 percent of, of BC residents who say that they don't want to wear masks, uh, who don't want to be vaccinated at all, and who believe that anything that is related to COVID-19 is an infringement on their freedom. Mm. So I'm not surprised to see the numbers where they are, because there's definitely some nuance here. And residents who are thinking, you know, I don't like where this is going as far as having to show a specific document whenever I go out let's say, to go to the gym or to go to a sporting event. Um, but ultimately, this is a temporary measure. You know, we have a lot of industries that are struggling, particularly um, issues such as sports or concerts. If you have 200 people who have been vaccinated and they have a ticket to go see the Rolling Stones, most people are saying, fine, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm, exactly. And of course, I don't know how, how fanciful this notion is. I terribly miss my hockey games. I love going to hockey games. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, but how, how possible is it that uh, when, the, when the Canucks resume play this fall in October and hopefully take on Seattle as part of that division, uh, that the Canucks say, look, you have to show us proof of vaccination if you want to come to a game tonight. Uh, that may or may not occur. It may be just so full of legal issues that they can't go there, but it wouldn't be surprising if they tried, would it? Well, I think it might be some of the things uh, that we see happening in the next few months, uh, depending on how quickly we get to the level of vaccination that allows people to say, just go on with your lives and everything's going to go back to normal. Sure. Um, it's complicated. I, I, I hate to cite an example uh, that is based in the state of Florida <laughs> because they haven't really been fantastic at dealing with COVID-19. Mm. But you look at the Super Bowl, you look at the way the NFL organized this and said, we need people vaccinated sitting on this area. That's right. If you haven't been vaccinated, you have to sit on this area. No high-fiving. Let's keep it loose. 
and ultimately social distance if you haven't been there. So that event worked out fine. And I think it might be something that maybe the CFL could implement. You know, we know that the CFL's fan base tends to be higher than 55. So most of those people will be vaccinated by the time the CFL season arrives. And it might be a good opportunity to say the stadium is open because most of you are vaccinated. Well, it's interesting. You pointed out the NFL draft coming up in a a couple of months in Cleveland, and it's open to the public. But in order to attend, you have to have proof of vaccination. Well, and it's exactly... What we see changing from the draft of 2019, for instance, everybody can be there. There's no COVID. Everybody's happy, shaking hands. 2020 was all virtual. 2021, you're going to allow people to sit closer to the stage if they've been vaccinated. And it's a temporary measure. I think people sometimes look at this and go, well, this is impossible. I need this document forever. No, in the same way that you won't need to social distance forever, in the same way you won't need to wear a mask forever. This is a temporary measure, and most people believe it's a good idea. Yeah, most people, as in, what was the final number in terms of overall approval for the notion of vaccine passports here in B.C. again, Mario? The notion is around 60% because we ultimately tested several things. And if you have some sort of average between everything that we tested, it comes out at around 60%. So roughly three out of five residents were essentially saying, uh, this isn't what I expected for my summer. But <laughs> no if this kidding. is the way it's going to be going, uh, I can take it. Yeah, a lot of us are prepared to, to take a few extra measures, particularly if it gives us a chance to see people that we haven't seen for a very, very long time. Uh, line me up and uh, give me my shot, please. Mario, thanks for this. We appreciate your time on a Saturday morning, a little bit of fun, and some very serious matters all tied up into one tasty little package. We do appreciate it. My pleasure, Stilling, anytime. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.